You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. I'm Rob Russo. I'm Jamie Dumont. I'm Jennifer Samard, and this is The Fabulous Invalid. (laughs) (laughs) What voice was that? I don't know. I'll do it again. Smoky. I'm Jennifer Samard, and this is The Fabulous Invalid. Hi, Rob. Hi, Jamie. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Jamie. We have Jennifer Samard back. Yay! Thank you. It's been a second. It has. It's very nice to see you. It's nice to see you both. (laughs) Welcome back. Thank you. But I got to see you last week. That was nice. (gasps) Socially. We went to see Jennifer Samard in Mean Girls on Saturday night. Yes. Boy, oh boy. That was fun. I loved it. You know, I've said this to you before. Mm -hmm. I saw Mean Girls, like, its eighth preview, right? With the understanding that I would have to go back and, you know, that it was not, you know, whatever. Um, And I enjoyed it, but I was like, this is a show that's clearly still working some stuff out, and I can't wait to see the finished product. And then I never saw it again, right? Mm -hmm. Life got a hold of me and whatever. So last night was the, or Saturday night was the first time I'd seen it sort of finished and frozen and and mm. and also a show after several months is such a different show yes. when it opens. God, that's a good show. Yeah, it's great. It's so funny. <laughs> and so and, funny. Oh, I just loved it. And yeah. I loved seeing you. You really nail all three of your your characters beautifully. Thanks, my friend. I really and 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 I have to say, you really work that dog. Hard. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and for those of you yeah. who have not seen Mean yeah. Girls, get a ticket to Mean Girls and find out what I'm talking about. You mean Fetch. It's the dog's name. Fetch. Is the dog's name Fetch? Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Oh, I, is, I didn't know that. I didn't Did you know. Name the no, Fetch? I didn't know it either. And then some of my uh, uh, castmates would come around the corner before I'd go on and they'd, they'd come scratch the dog and say, Hi, Fetch. Hi, Fetch. <laughs> ah, that's great. Yeah. So I loved it. Okay. Skittles, the musical. Skittles, the musical. Is that what it's called? Isn't it? I think so. Yeah. Has any? Does anyone know what we're talking about, Jennifer? I do. You know I, what I do. About? Yeah. Did you? No, did you click through the link I sent you? No. Oh, I didn't send it to you. you That's why. Look, yeah. How could you? Um, there's apparently a musical television commercial about Skittles during the, I guess the commercial breaks for the stupid bowl, a uh, Super Bowl. Excuse me. Wow. And it's a fully realized Broadway musical in the confines of a 30-second or minute commercial starring Michael Hall, correct? I, Do I, I mean, that right? My understanding is that it's a 30-minute musical that what? has been written by Will Eno, the playwright, and it's being performed at Town Hall on Sunday afternoon. And then I guess from that 30-minute musical about Skittles starring Michael C. Hall... Uh, they're somehow packaging that into content that'll be available, whether online or in between commercial breaks or something. I don't know, but it has generated quite some buzz. People on Twitter can't stop talking about it. Skittles. Skittles. Those nasty little round colorful candies that taste like f- sugary fruit, correct? I mean, that's, you know, that's quite a 
heavy statement, but yes, what would yes. You like, you're, you're describing what would you like me to say? America's favorite confection, Skittles. Yeah. Sure. Whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. Okay. <laughs> I actually don't not... really care for Skittles personally. Okay. Uh, What's your favorite candy bar? Candy bar? Ooh, gosh. I'd have to go with the Snickers. Okay. Jennifer Smart, what's your favorite candy bar? Snickers. Yeah. Wow, two Snickers. Aaron yeah. Kaufman, what's your favorite candy bar? Uh, Reese's, but they're not candy bars. If it has well, to be they have a bar. A candy bar version. Yeah. That's, uh, I'm I, sorry, I'm using the term. Can- okay, so you go to the candy counter, you pick up, what do you grab? Uh, Reese's or Take Five. Okay. Ooh, take Five. Is Reese's peanut butter cups or those mm-hmm. nasty little pieces things? Uh, well, I guess <laughs> if I want to keep my job, I'll say Reese's peanut butter yeah. cups and not Someone the nasty has a bias ones. against yeah. small round chocolates, huh? Say, say the truth. Do you like Reese's pieces? No, I you like, like the peanut, I like peanut butter M and M's. I love peanut butter M and M's. That's my go-to okay. at the Wait, theater. Yeah. Okay. I changed okay. my answer. Peanut Calm butter. down, everybody. Well, you asked a question. <laughs> I know, but I'm, I'm trying to get something specific out of Aaron. Because Reese's piece, Reese's, now I'm saying it, Reese's is my favorite candy, hmm. right? But do you like the, the full cups? Yep. Okay, I like the minis. Oh. Because you don't have to unwrap mm. anything. You tear open the bag, boom, you're done. Um, so be... this side of the table is Reese's, that side of the table is Snickers. It's the nougat. It's the nougat. Yeah, I it's love the nougat. nougat. I love mm-hmm. a nougat. Okay, yeah. all right. That and the memory, because my mother used to tell us when we were trick-or-treating that we wouldn't like Snickers because it had nuts in it, just because she knew the heaven that would await. So she would get our Snickers bars. We like, we, she was like, oh, you'll like the Milky Ways, but you won't like the Snickers because it has nuts in it. We're like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Mother Samard was and a And so she one. was yeah. perfect. And she, um, I have to say that her wake was held on Halloween, so I handed out Snickers bars to everyone who came to the wake. <laughs> That's great. That's perfect. Mm-hmm. Do you freeze them? Do you like them cold, frozen? My no, dad does that, frozen yeah. Snickers. Yeah. The mini ones, too. I have yeah, a friend yeah. that likes the, the oh, yeah. tiny ones. Mm-hmm. I like a mini candy. Person. How did we get here? Oh, Skittles the Musical. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, fuck Skittles the Musical. I'm more interested in what our favorite candy is. <laughs> to be fair, Skittles does have a connection to the NFL already because a very popular running back, Marshawn Lynch, uh, like notoriously would eat Skittles in interviews and not answer questions, and then he was then a spokesman for the candy. So they already have some connection to football. I wonder if this will be a plot line of Skittles the Musical. I'm more fascinated that Aaron knows this. Are you a football fan? Yes. Uh, then what are you doing on a podcast about Broadway? You can like more than one thing. <laughs> and there it is. That's the lesson for the day. You can I like, like more than one thing. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that, Aaron. <laughs> I'm so glad we gave Aaron a mic. <laughs> He's teaching me so much. Yeah. Okay. Well, I don't mean to trash Skittles the musical because I should see it first. I believe but. the word was nasty Skittles. Is yeah, you nasty. really is that what I went there. Nasty. I really yeah. went there. It was, uh, yeah. All right. We, well, you know, we might get sued. <laughs> you, know? you know, I can't not be who I am. Mm-hmm. I have one little take two item I'd like to get off my chest. Oh, I forgot. If I about can. That. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, as if you, for our listeners who don't know, take two is our little segment where we correct things that we said on prior episodes that were um, mistaken. Um, so, on a, a, a couple episodes back, um, when we interviewed Bonnie Milligan, I did a little segment in my, you may be wondering, about um, the sudden and very exciting uh, amount of representation of trans and non binary actors on stage in New York. And in the course of talking about um, various shows that have come out over the past year, um, I referred to transgender actor and singer Jax Jackson as a transgender woman. And that was a mistake. Um, Jax actually identifies as agender and does not use pronouns. Um, So I wanted to just apologize to our listeners for for making that mistake and to thank one of our listeners, Jeff, who uh, brought it to our attention. Um, because certainly I would never want to intentionally or unintentionally misgender someone, uh, especially in you know, the context of where we are uh, in this moment um, in our world, sadly, um, with the Supreme Court just last week allowing the Trump administration to go ahead with their transgender ban of um, those serving in the military who are transgender. Um, you know, it, it, unprecedented violence over the past couple of years. It only took us six days into 2019 to have the first murder of a trans person in America. Um, so in that context, um, you know, we have to take this very seriously. And I especially feel like in the theater community, you know, we should do all that we can to support and elevate um, trans performers. So um, I want to apologize to Jax, to our listeners, and um, 
thank you for getting that off, letting me get that off my chest. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Rob. You're always so conscientious and. I try. That's why I was so upset when you know it was brought to my attention. Because you care deeply. Right. Right. There it is. Thank you. I should probably do a take two. Oh. What's that? Well, to the Skittles Corporation and Nestle, Mars, Hal Burton, and the military, all of whom I think own the world. Skittles and America. So I apologize for maligning your delicious confection. Mm. There you go. I guess I should do a take two now. Just you, well, you haven't done anything. I, I'm perfect, right? You are. <laughs> yes, you are. We've established that. Thank you for being perfect. Yeah. Is that your take two? You're apologizing for your perfection. I just feel like I should say I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm you are sorry. forgiven. Well, dear. Aaron's going to do a take five. Too soon. Hey. Too soon. Well done. That was his, his second was, favorite. That's Andy. called a callback here in comedy circles. Yeah. Oh, Jamie's looking at me was, like I'm I crazy. Yeah. I wasn't listening. I don't even know what the fuck a take five is. That's a candy bar? Yeah, With pretzels in it. Uh, oh, that has, sounds good. It yeah. has five different ingredients, and it's like one of the newer kinds of candy. So it like yeah. had its, like, it was it debuted maybe 10 years ago. It, it had so a it, moment. It yeah. had a real moment. They're very yeah. good. Aaron lit up. Mm. <laughs> Literally Got illuminated the with a glow, a glow from within when he was talking about his take five. I think that's your favorite candy bar. No, it's really peanut butter M&Ms. All right. Well, with that, I think we should probably move on to our guest today. If the sun should tumble from the sky, if the sea should suddenly run dry, if you Today's guest has starred on Broadway as Eliza Doolittle in My Fair Lady, as Laurie in the seminal 1979 production of Oklahoma, On Your Toes, Rags, The Scarlet Pimpernel, and La Cage aux Folles. She has performed in concerts and cabaret around the world and can be heard on countless recordings, including four solo albums. Her latest album, Piaf, No Regrets, is nothing short of brilliant. And in an aside that I am tickled to learn this morning, you were a member of the new Christie <laughs> Please welcome Guilty. Christine Andreas. <laughs> I loved that fact. Somebody just sent me a picture. One of the guys, John Natali, sent me a picture of, of us in like, we're talking like 71. Like he wasn't Bowen. And he sent me this picture of all of us posed in our little smart costumes, the Christie's with our long hair and banjos, guitars and tambourines and green, green, it's green. They say. Yeah, that was a chapter. Did you tour with them or was it? Yeah, it was actually kind of brilliant. Well, what happened was I had just gotten off the road in the last leg of the bus and truck of the original production of Fiddler. Wow. So we're 1970, 71. And I, everybody falls in love with their perchick or their huddle or their <laughs> you know, muddle or whatever. You know, there was lots of marriages came out of Fiddler. So I really had... Uh, strong, hot relationship going on with my pear chick, and we wanted to stay together, and we both got offered parts in traveling with the Christies, and the brilliant thing about it was, you know, you, you got to see more of the country, which is nice when you're young, and you got to play these incredible rooms. Like, we opened in Vegas for Frank Gorshin and Buddy Hackett wow. and Rich Little and, you know, brilliant comedians, and I had, for the first time, an orchestra of, like, I mean, the Vegas musicians... This is the big room of the Sahara, right? So we opened for these comics. And you had these fantastic guys who played for everybody, you know? And I think, I guess it was maybe it was 20-some pieces. I don't even know now. But it sounded like a symphony. And I'd never had that behind me ever, you know? I mean, I was a young kid. So with that behind you, that just kicked you into a whole new exciting musical gear. So the Christie's were cool. The only downside was we would be going around to these army bases around the time of the war. It was the Vietnamese mm. War. And we're going, yay, America. And there was such a... <laughs> you know, some of these guys are being shipped out the next morning. Yeah. You know, this, this part was kind of tough. But yeah. that was also sobering, so... Well, it was quite a beginning. <laughs> it was quite a beginning. Well, I want to jump a little bit uh, mm -hmm. further because you, you, you have a new album out, uh, PF. Pee off, no regrets. Quite a and, bit further, yes. And yeah, <laughs> to the present. <laughs> to present. Present? Um, 1971. Now. <laughs> and I have to say, I will, I will candidly admit that I was not a huge Piaf fan. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I learned that you had the album, I thought, okay, I'm going to give it a try because I'm a big fan of yours. And Thank I figured, you. I figured, 
if anyone could get me on board with Piaf, it would be you. And lo and behold, you did. Because I, I listened to your album, I think, twice in a row after mm -hmm. the first time I heard it. And Same. then I fell, so did Rob, and then I fell down this huge, crazy Piaf rabbit hole. And started <laughs> listening to all of this Piaf. Mind you, this is someone I was not a huge fan of to, to, yeah, no, before. Right, right. And what I thought was so interesting was that her music was at times religious and hymnal and, yeah. and patriotic. It was all of these things I never associated with what little I knew of Piaf. Mm. Um, so I have to say that I found your Piaf album very accessible, very, very, from, from the minute, and it, from, the, from the minute I listened to it. And so my question is, was, was that a goal of yours? Was that something that just happened when you started recording the album? What what makes it so accessible? When Definitely, you it was a goal. I mean, what you just said. Thank you very much for all those nice things you said. First of all, but um, I mean, you didn't know her well at all. I and, and and most people who think they know her mm. don't know her, because and and as I say, you know, I was I was rereading my liner notes as I said to you before the interview because I've been out of town and I forgot what I wrote. So, um, but but I mean, I come, it all comes back to me. But uh, you know, she. She, it's really her fault, in a way, because she did her own PR. She was a, really a woman of her time. I will get to your question, but she was a woman of her time. So she, she let's just say, she, when something would happen to her that was more exciting than the reality of her life, which was fantastical, she would just take on that little bit of information that seemed really cool but wasn't true. Like somebody said, oh, you were born on the streets of Paris. She wasn't born on the streets of Paris. She was born in a hospital. But she liked the way that sounded, and so I mean that, and that's a benign little fact. So her her life and her legacy is filled with all of these pieces of not, not of non truth. <laughs> and I, to quote the woman who wrote the Bible that I took my show from, Carolyn Burke, she said, "You know, leaning on the tragic myth, being born on the streets of Paris or whatever, you know, it thins the texture of a life. And her life is so incredible." The more that I got into it, and I, I'll get into that in a minute, the more that I got into her life, I just thought something provoked me, really provoked me to want to tell the real story of this artist. Because she, she went from the gutter to being the voice of France. Talk about a leap. I, mean, I went from the new Christie Minstrels to recording that movie up. That's really <laughs> nice. But I mean, to go from the gutter, and she really was abandoned by her mother, terrible stuff. It was like a latter-day Les Mis, her life. And then she it becomes this voice of France. And the reason that her music is accessible, and, that, and why I chose to make it even more accessible to a non-French-speaking audience, was one of my goals, is that she says herself that her life is her song. So all of these songs, you said there's this range of emotion and uh, uh, dynamic in her music it's because the songs come from different life events. Mm -hmm. That's one reason I, I wanted to demystify the myth. And I, I wanted the depth of her artistry to be appreciated by doing that. Because um, I feel, and, and it's actually becoming true that when I sing this music, and when people listen to this, I'm, every person who I know and people I don't know, I'm, I would say at least 15 people have said to me, I can't stop playing this <laughs> CD, which I didn't anticipate they would say that. Quand il me prend dans ses bras, il me parle tout bas, je vois l'avion rose. Mon cœur qui 
But I think the bottom, the word, the one word, I guess it's two words, is life force. Life force is in this music. And is there ever a time when we don't need mm. a major hit on a daily basis? Now more than ever. That's yeah. what I'm saying, well, you're, pure life force. You're a beautiful interpreter of this. I um, I was talking to you outside before we started mm. that we had done Fran Drescher's uh, charity event, Cancer, Cancer Schmancer yeah. Cruise, a yeah. few years ago. And I heard you sing La Vie en Rose. Yeah. And my husband and I both were blown away. First of all, it was the song we danced to at our wedding. Mm -hmm. And my father was a French teacher who loves Edith Piaf. I'm a little bit versed in her because of his, he was such mm. a fan. He wants me to sing Je ne regrette rien at, her, at his funeral. Oh. <laughs> and I'm, I'm not sure I'll be able to. But the point is to make this about you, which is what this is all about. I, with all due respect to her, I don't think I've ever heard La Vie en Rose sung more beautifully than by you. True story. And um, I want to ask you, what, what lessons do you think uh, Piaf has taught you, if any? Oh. So Edith Piaf said that the most important thing in life is a resilient heart, which is a beautiful thought. And for anyone who's been through the challenges that life Nobody really is exempt from the challenges of life, right? So it's a beautiful creed. So that is maybe the overall blanket lesson. I feel that I am learning from her. But there are so many aspects and so many pieces to her and such complexity that I think as time goes on and I keep doing this show, I'm just going to mature more and more as an artist and, and as a human being. Do you feel the spirit, the spirit of Piaf in oh, your performing? She's, I, I, I've joked when people, people say to me, you know, why are you doing the show in Piaf? My, the first time I was asked that, I said, because she's haunting me. And, I, and it was a joke, but not really. Because when I, I read a beautiful book about her called Piaf No Regrets, same as my show, by a woman named Carolyn Burke, who I've since spoken with on the phone. She tracked me down through Google Alert. Oh. <laughs> well, I, I was flying to do this show at the Venetian Room in San Francisco, and as we hit Chicago, I think it was, for a layover to get the next leg of the flight, my manager called and said, Carolyn Burke is trying to get in touch with you. And I went, ah, because she's like a goddess to me. She had, she had studied every aspect of Piaf's life and met many of her friends and demystified the myth. She's the one that just validated for me that this needed to be done. So we had a great conversation. But what was your question again? <laughs> well, you answered it. My question was, do you feel the spirit of Piaf yes. in you? So have you performed in any of the venues that she's performed in? The Venetian in? Room. That, I was, was going to say, I thought she, she had performed in. There yeah. are a lot of ghosts in that room. There are a lot of ghosts. I'd, I'd played it several years before, and Ella wouldn't leave me alone to the point where I just went up <laughs> on a lyric of her song, you know? Uh, but it's a really magical, it's a magical room. I love, I love singing there. So... Um, she is definitely haunting me. And I, and I think another reason that she's haunting me, because I, I just talk to her. I just, I mean, I'm a little metaphysical. I'm a lot metaphysical. So the idea that something is reaching out, things have reached out. My dad reached out to me for a year after he passed. And I heard him, you know, I, he was there. So I don't think it's unusual that a, a, an energy as big as Piaf would just be sitting back while anybody's... No, she was probably waiting for you it, to do this. Maybe like, it's a, what's so. A, it's well, about time. That would be quite a mantle to take on. But I, I, I would imagine she's like going, I would like this set about me and that set about And I think she wants her record set straight. Like I said, I think she also feels the need for, you can tell me this. I mean, younger artists and this sort of sad entitlement that a lot of younger artists feel, younger performers, I should say, they're not yet artists. You know, you get one big break and you think, well, so where's my Tony? You know, I never thought that. As a young actor, it was like, I just was trying to get the role right. organized in my head. Once I got that, actually, many times I would think, yeah, I got that role. It wasn't even ego. I just had a feeling about it. My Fair Lady, I knew I was going to get that part before I got the part. It really wasn't ego. It was just like, I knew it. It was, it was like, I knew it. it was written in my karma. The problem was after I got the part, I had to deliver Shaw. That was difficult. But when I was a young artist, I just wanted to be a better artist. I didn't think about my Tony. I mean, yeah, you wish for it, but it wasn't the reason why I was doing it. And honestly, I worked with young artists in some recent shows, and that's on their mind. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I went, so I think Edith is like going, 
they don't understand, you know, what it is to be a fine artist, you know. I mean, it is diligence and hard work and heartbreak and challenge and failing and failing and failing and failing and staying resilient, you know. So I think she's like a great example to any artist who wants to be a fine artist, um, what it takes, what the road looks like. It doesn't have to be as tragic as her. She, tro she chose a lot of crazy tragedy, but they were her, it was her choice. I want to touch on something you brought up earlier. You famously starred as Eliza Doolittle in the 20th anniversary production of My Fair Lady on yeah. Broadway. Mm -hmm. So I have so many, so many questions about this, <laughs> such as um, have you seen the Lincoln Center revival? I would like to know what the casting process was like for you, and I'd like to know your thoughts about the controversial ending, or what do you think happens when Eliza we comes? Know, Shaw, I think, yeah. gives you the ending. She doesn't come back. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's not going to change. Mm -hmm. He's, you know, not going to change, so she's not coming back. And that's not the ending you want in a musical, but, you know, I mean, if you're going to be true to who the characters are, mm -hmm. she's going to try to maybe teach proper English to mm -hmm. other gutter snipes or whatever. Mm -hmm. And who knows what happens to her, you know, mm -hmm. but she doesn't come back. So that never really felt right, even mm -hmm. in my production. You know, it's like it's mm -hmm. a sentimental ending. But um, but you said you knew that you that you felt it was I, destined to be. This is weird, and this is one of these ninny 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 kind mm -hmm. of things. You know, when I was a kid, <clears throat> I remember reading Pygmalion because I would read all the plays that the musicals are based on. My mom was a lovely natural singer, so I heard all the shows on the. 45 record player on the fridge or on the radio. 45. I know. <laughs> Your record playing. player was on the refrigerator? Was on the refrigerator, yeah, out of the hands of the other seven siblings who uh, were toddling around or whatever it was mm -hmm. at the time. Anyway, so it would always be playing and music was around. So I heard all these shows. But Fair Lady in particular just jolted me. And so I, I read Pygmalion when I was still in, I guess, maybe sixth grade, fifth grade, something. And I just knew that I was connected to this somehow. I didn't know how. I knew I was going to go into New York right after high school. Mm -hmm. I, and, and then I, when I got into New York, one show you didn't mention I did on Broadway was Angel Street. Mm. I played a Cockney maid. It was directed by, uh, not, it was Michael Allenson, who was Rex's cover in the original Fair Lady, was the leading man in Angel Street. The late great, and my great friend Dean Merrill was the star. And while I was doing Angel Street, they were casting for Fair Lady. 700 girls in England and in New York. Michael started coaching me. They wanted to see me. When I got to the audition, they wouldn't do the infamous slipper scene, the scenes they normally do, because they knew Michael was coaching me, so they gave me something entirely different. Mm -hmm. Like, why? What the heck matters? <laughs> if I do it, good. That's called rehearsal. But anyway, that didn't phase me. And I sang. Singing was fine. Shaw was tough. Um, and I knew I was going to get it. I just knew between Michael's coaching, Pygmalion, um, and there was one other piece I can't remember now because I haven't told the story in Your so exquisite long. singing voice? Well, you know, I mean, I sang it. It was like rolling, rolling off a log. Yeah. It just was not a problem. I could have danced all night. I could have danced all night and still have made for more. I could have spread my wings and done a thousand things What made it so exciting? Why all at once my heart to fly? I only know when he began to dance with me, I could have danced, danced, danced.
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey, Mel. Bri here. Gotta work from home today because the whole family caught a nasty. Hey, Mikey, if you're gonna puke, find the popcorn bowl. But my availability is 110%. Coincidentally, so is my fever. <laughs> Kidding. Mel, I'm so cold but hot. Uh, but I'm gonna get you that budget. Just as soon as... Right. Mikey! Popcorn bowl! Press 1 to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press 2 to keep working. Do not press 2. Just use Instacart. Brian. When it happened, I wasn't surprised. Yeah. I was just waiting for them to realize it. And again, it wasn't my ego. I just knew. Now, what I didn't know was that I would have three weeks of rehearsal, three weeks out of town, and then opening night. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. And basically, Jerry Adler, uh, that was the other piece. Jerry Adler had directed Words and Music. That was another show I did in New York, right before Angel Street, I guess it was. And Jerry was directing this. So and he was, was the stage th- manager on the original production, yes, correct? Yes, and that's still what he was, because Jerry, God bless him, just didn't really know how to direct Shaw. Mm-hmm. So we were all at sea. My leading man was a Shavian scholar. He was at sea. The only thing I had going for me was I loved Julie Andrews, and I wasn't intimidated mm-hmm. by the specter of Julie. You know, I, I never wasn't intimidated by things like that. Because, again, my, my love for the material, I couldn't wait to sing it. But, I, but when I realized I, didn't, I couldn't cut the Shaw, it took me three months to really know what I was doing. And then I actually got re-reviewed, and they remarked on that. Mimi Torchin, I think it was, in New York Magazine. I can't remember, but really beautiful. She came back, and, and I didn't get terrible notices, but I knew I was not delivering Shaw. Mm-hmm. But there was no way I could. It, it, you know, she, Julie was locked in a room with Moss Hart. Mm-hmm. She was going to be fired. He gave her every line reading, and she was a seasoned actress. You know, so it's 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 a rough role to to do it uh, when you're a teenager, and I had no training, no acting training. I think people underestimate that show. I think oh people God. people think of it as the learner and low part of it, and you're very smart to point out that it's the Shaw is the killer, right? It's that's, the killer. That's you you the have thing. to really. I mean, it was written for Mrs. Pactor Campbell. She was 50 years old when she did the part. Right. Shaw wrote it for her. You got you need season you know, skills. So your next show we mentioned was Oklahoma, Mm -hmm. which was the sort of seminal 1979 revival Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. that show in which uh, at that time DeMille and Richard Rodgers were still alive, correct? Yeah. They were were involved in the the rehearsal process to a certain Well, Richard Rodgers had had his stroke and so he wasn't well, but he did make an appearance. Oh, he did. DeMille choreographed. Right. Mm. Right. And when I asked her to please, I only asked her one thing and, and she was absolutely adored and she also had her stroke. Right. But she was still very active. And I only asked her one thing. I said, Mr. Ma, can you just help me at the end of many new day? Can you just help me with my exit? I didn't know how to get off. And she just mm-hmm. said, she looked me up and she said, we'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. It was a compliment. She meant it. She wasn't being mean. She had a lot of work to do. She figured I'd figure it out. I did. We she on. knew you could handle it. She thought it. Well, she thought I could. Wow. And you did. And I, I figured out my ex. <laughs> yes. And a few other things. <laughs> well, that was the production. Um, uh, for anybody who has not heard the recording, you need to get it right away because it is, I, as I said earlier, it is, the I think, the best recording of that show. And, Larry Guitard singing. And, Jesus, oh, Mary Joseph. And, well, and you and Mary Wicks. Mary and Wicks. Ebersole, and Harry Groner. I mean, yeah, and I, I believe Jessica Malaski was in the chorus. I mean, yeah. it just it goes on and on and on. Um, my question is, though, there was a bit of controversy around the notion of you being a brunette. Can Lori, you imagine that? Which now? is so stupid, I think, to anybody listening mm-hmm. now. Like at the time, did you think it was dumb? Did, wasn't it? Uh, I just I ignored it. You ignored it. I just ignored it. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, come on. What up? I mean, she probably was a redhead in reality. I mean, that was a redheaded kind of personality, right? But do you guys Actually, remember in yeah. my solo show? I was like, does she or doesn't she? That it was so taboo, uh, commenting on women's hair color, and mm-hmm. it's just it would not yeah. happen now. Who it just seems so what? misogynistic and stupid. Ding 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 ding. ding. We have a winner. Way of looking at it, doesn't right. it? Isn't it more important that you are good in the part and your hair color doesn't? I don't think it really was a problem in terms of me being cast. No, clearly not. Because uh, they could always throw a wig on me. But nobody ever said to me, we want you to wear a wig. or what? They just changed long yellow hair to long raven hair, which is beautiful. Did you read Green Grows the Lilacs? Of course. And how is I've never read it. How is it as a book? It's wonderful. Is it? I wanted to do I always wanted to do the play rather than the musical. Oh. I mean, oh, wait, when you read was that, it a book or a play it's first? A play. It was a play first. Yeah, okay. Lynn Riggs. Lynn and it has Riggs. Green Grow the Lilacs all covered with dew. There's music all through it. Oh. Is there, yeah, is there a character in the musical theater canon that you'd still like to tackle that you think? I always wanted to do Desiree. Night music. Oh, mm. yeah. You'd be yeah. so good at that. I always wanted to do Anna and the King and I, but those days are gone. Hmm. I mean, I, I would read these musicals, and I would be there doing them, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, never quite having quite with their lady. I never quite through the show. never got through the show enough to mm-hmm. be there doing it. But these other ones, I mean, when I went into Oklahoma, I actually said no to Billy Hammerstein. He handed me the role at the audition. Really? That never happens. No. And I said, I don't know. He went... I mean, he just went, like a quintuple take, right? <laughs> and I, he said, why? I said, well, I've done it already. He said, what do you mean you've done it already? And I had done the role in Summer Stock. So I had, in my mind, I had worked out the character. Who she was. Mm-hmm. And, I, and they were doing a revival of Most Happy Fella, and I wanted to do Rosabella. Mm-hmm. That didn't work out. I think that didn't come to be at that time. And my agent hit me in the head with the brick, and I said, yes, I'll do it. I'll, of course I'll do Oklahoma. And I had a great time. But I said no to it, and I said no to On Your Toes because I thought it was getting too old to do an option to George Abbott's face. <laughs> do you think I got the reputation of being a little difficult? <laughs> wow, you said no to George, George Abbott's Abbott. face? I did. Well, I liked his face. I said no to the part. <laughs> his oh. face was great. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Mr. Abbott, I didn't mean to imply. And again, I, I didn't think of about as ego. I thought, I'm getting too old to be an ingenue. So you weren't worried about doing a third major revival? That wasn't part, no. of, part of the process? No. no I just, I, I, I mean, I was trying to be an honest actor. Right. But I was being an idiot right. in retrospect. And I ended up doing both shows, so it all worked out okay. Sounds like you were trying to be a true artist. I was trying to be. In my mind, that's what a true artist is like going, what can I figure out next? What can I bring to life next, which is, again, why I picked Edith. You know, this right. is such a worthy thing to bring back to life. Yeah. She's worthy to bring back to life. This is a wellspring for me, yeah. and it's bringing me a lot of joy. So, you know, I, I've always had that notion. I always had the notion things would never end. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I got sidetracked big time by a number of life events, so it's okay. I mean, in retrospect, I look back and I go, God, I wish... I mean, I wanted to do Sunday in the Park with George so badly, you can't believe and, and when Bernadette finished, I almost did. 
But for a variety of reasons, that didn't work out. And, you know, my responsibility, you know. Um, it was another great show I wanted to do. I guess that was the biggest one. But, you know, certainly there's other parts that would have been fabulous to... Did someone take over for Bernadette? I, I thought she closed the show. She might have closed it. Yeah. That's right. That would have been great to have seen you do. That. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've shared more. so much wisdom already with us, but I'm curious, what, what what advice would you give to someone who's starting out in this business? I like the resilient heart piece, yeah. you know, but um, I guess the most important thing, because it's what I'm left with, you know, looking back, I want to be able to sing Je ne regrette rien myself, you know, at the end of my life, look back and go, you know, the good or the bad, basically what you say in that song is, I throw it all away, it's all the same. What matters is this moment right now, being awake, aware, loving, that's what matters. The good and the bad, if you let them influence you too much, you, you might miss out right on this moment. So um, I guess what I would say is, is listen, because I've had a very insistent voice always in my head, and we all do, this intuitive voice that says, okay, you can go left, you can go right. Look at them both. Really assess. And you'll feel this voice or this impulse to just, that's it. You know, you know that left is really where your heart is, where the authentic thing is, the immediate truth for you, where the buoyancy is, and the ego says, yeah, but look over there at the right, that's so shiny, and you go right. And a lot, of, and every time I did that, I mean, this voice would be so loud, my first marriage, on the wedding day, don't do it! <laughs> and I'm going, yeah, but Aunt Mary's here in the cake, and, and I knew this was the wrong guy, and I married him in 10 years of hardship, you know, because it was just resistance, resistance, resistance. I knew it was wrong the day I said yes. So, I mean, that's just one tough example. So I would say, listen, listen, you know, it's the answer is in you. It's always in you, you know, but sometimes your ego is just really loud and you don't hear it. I or love you that. hear it and you don't care. Yeah, I love right. that. That's we, good advice. That's very good advice. We have, um, we always ask people here like two specific questions. I Maybe I'll do the first one. But oh, oh. what do you do to relax? Oh, God, I never relax. I try so hard. <laughs> Uh, I do hot baths, I do reflexology, I do Reiki, I do some yoga, but I have a bum hip now, so it's not as easy. Um, do you have I, a Reiki master come in, or do you actually no, do pra it. You practice? I'm second degree Reiki, so yeah. I had to learn it. Because I, I, I'm, a, I'm an, a high sensitive. Hmm. I, mean, I think most of us are. In the, you know, it's like you soak in what's in the room, yeah. mm -hmm. and if you don't know how to ground and get rid of it, it just kind of stays in you, like caffeine, like too much coffee, mm. so. Well, you seem very in touch with the spiritual world, like, acutely. I need to be in touch with something bigger because I mentioned I have, I have an autistic son, and I don't know a lot, he, he's verbal and he's beautiful, and even right now there's really tough issues going on, and I don't know. I, mean, I don't know in a linear way the next step. And so I just have to kind of do the stigmata, open up and go, hey, anybody, somebody, you know, just yeah. give me a sign. Because it's one thing to do it for your own life, but when you're shepherding another life, you know, I mean, that's large. So I just don't, I admit I don't know. It's like the 12-step program or something. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I surrender. So, um, but I, I've always been that, even before my son was born, I, I liked the notion of something bigger. I was raised Catholic. I threw it all out because I didn't think an organized way would lead me to truth, you know. Um, so I'm very spiritual, and I'm, I'm religious without it being organized, you know. There's definitely something. But let me just look around. It's so beautiful. What's beautiful? Nature, please God, may it always be so, is so beautiful and balanced. I mean, it just can't be random. It doesn't make sense to me. And I'll find out one day whether I'm right or wrong. But right now, this is what gives me comfort. This is what helps me stay resilient. This is what keeps me buoyant, is believing that, you know, deep inside I know and something out there I connect to. They say that thoughts are energy, and all great thoughts are like sort of a, you know, like a milky way of energy, you know, if you want to think of it that way. And when you're quiet enough, you can hook into great, great thoughts about I've anything. I've never heard that before. That's oh, brilliant. Yeah. Isn't that a neat idea? I love that. But yeah. thoughts are energy. Yeah. Where do they go when you die? Where is the energy that is you? Your energy, your electromagnetic, your energy. Where does it go? I mean, more and more, um, science and metaphysics are 
connecting. Because yeah. great minds just, they, they say the same thing. I mean, where does this energy go? And like I said, when my dad passed and he did not die well, for one year, I found four-leaf clovers everywhere. Yeah. My dad found them everywhere. I was pissed he died. I was really mad. Yeah. He was supposed to help me with my son. I went, yeah. And as I'm shrying at my father, I'm clawing the earth on Roosevelt Island, and I pull up a four-leaf clover, and I go. And for one year, they were everywhere. Mm. For us, it was dragonflies. Was when my it? father passed away, um, suddenly the, the, day, the day of his funeral, we all gathered at my parents' house, and, and after 20 years of, or however long they'd lived in the house, there'd never been a dragonfly, and a dragonfly mm -hmm. appeared. And then suddenly mm -hmm. it, there were dragonflies all through. My brothers were finding dragonflies in their life. We, my husband and I moved to New York, and on the uh, terrace of an apartment on 85th Street, mm -hmm. eight stories in the sky, there was yeah. a dragonfly that yeah. first summer that yeah. we lived in New York. So I, I believe that those well, things it's comforting. not and, coincidental. And, you know, so what if you die, you find out it's not so. It helped you through yeah, a sure. tough time, you know? So, you know, who cares, really, if it's something that just helps you and keeps you right. buoyant, you know, so that you're better at what you do, and, you know? I, I, don't, I don't, you know, I don't need to kiss the wounds and stick, you know, I don't need to, I just need to stay buoyant, <laughs> you know? <laughs> the doubting Thomas. Just, I want to point out that you were kissing the <laughs> nail marks on your palms, <laughs> apparently. Um, um, <laughs> <laughs> oh God! Couldn't let that one go. I know, right? Um, all right. Well, we, we, we you've been so gracious with your uh -huh. with your time, and I, I thank you for that. We do have one final question, unless somebody else have missed no, something. No, yeah. uh, we do ask everyone this: uh, What was that first show or film that made you want to do what you do? It, it probably would have been a record. It would have been something I heard, and I'm not even sure I can pick one out because we played all of them. Might have been King and I. Maybe King and I was the strongest force. I don't know. But it was music. And, and maybe it was just the sound of my mother's voice singing them, because she sang them with such love and joy. And what's the voice? You know, in utero, I heard this voice. You know, so I mean, truly, it was the sound of her voice, probably singing them. Can you hear her voice today? Oh clearly? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I can. Lower than mine, but really pretty. Yeah. Well, speaking of pretty voices, thank you so much for coming down and, and spending some time with us. So, oh, and one last thing. Piaf is coming out on vinyl in March. Oh, cool. wow. PS March Classics what? agreed to put it out. I can't give you the exact date. Agreed to put it out on vinyl. Do you have a record player? Yeah. Ah. I've got to get a better one. <laughs> When's the last time you played one of your records? Probably last week listening oh. to my vinyl. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, off, no regrets. Soon available on vinyl. Yeah, that's isn't that great. cool. Yeah. Wow. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Martin Silvestri, for thinking of that. That's my husband. <laughs> Smart man. He did man. a great job. He produced it. It's a, it's a, it's a brilliant, beautiful album. It, it, is. it, yeah. it really is. Well, all of your albums are, but this one's very special. This one, this one is is um, there's a lot of soul in this album. A lot of Piaf soul. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Edith. So I'll be traveling around the country in different performing arts centers performing it. So please check out ChristinaAndreas.com. Rob here with You May Be Wondering. As we just talked about, last fall, Christine Andres released a fabulous album in tribute to Edith Piaf. We discussed Piaf's life and legacy with Christine just now, but you may be wondering if there was more you should know about this legendary French singer. Piaf was born Edith Giovanna Gassion on December 19, 1915, in a crowded, working-class section of Paris. Little detail is known of her much-mythologized childhood but she was immediately abandoned by her mother and put in the custody of her grandmother who ran a house of prostitution. Edith was later blind from the ages of three to six, allegedly healed on a pilgrimage honoring Saint Therese of Lisieux. She later toured with her father, a traveling acrobat, and began working as a child, 
varnishing the soles of shoes and singing for her co-workers. At age 16, she had an affair with a soldier that resulted in the birth of her only child, who would tragically die at age two. Depressed, she began singing on the street as a busker, and in 1937, at the age of 22, was discovered and hired to sing in a cabaret. 99 pounds and barely four foot 10 inches tall, Piaf had the extraordinary power of casting a spell over her audience and listeners. As luck would have it, Maurice Chevalier was in the crowd for her debut, with Django Reinhardt leading the band. The club owner, before being murdered, gave Edith her new last name, Piaf, French slang for sparrow, and the simple black dress that would become her hallmark uniform. She soon began recording albums and by 1939 was singing in music halls. During World War II in occupied Paris, she sang for prisoners of war and in nightclubs and brothels, becoming a symbol of French resistance, adored for her torch songs of love, loss, and sorrow, the most famous being La Vie en Rose, recorded in 1945. Tragedy followed her success, though. Her first husband, a boxer, died in a plane crash, and a second marriage ended in divorce. She would marry a third time in the final year of her life. But through it all, a series of car accidents, alcoholism, drug dependence, and insomnia left her very frail. And yet, she'd muster her strength, her resilient heart, to tour again, each tour deemed suicidal by the press, and possibly her last. While well paid for her sold-out concerts around the world, she was generous with her money and often struggled to make ends meet, so she had to sing to live, to endure both physically and financially. Piaf was regarded as the greatest French theater artist since Sarah Bernhardt and remains revered today as a symbol of France. She died on October 12, 1963, after suffering an internal hemorrhage from liver cancer while an ambulance transport from her home in the south of France to Paris for treatment. She was just 47 years old. Piaf's life and career only continued to be celebrated following her death, increasing her iconic status. While many books have been written and films made, most famously the 2007 film La Vie en Rose, there's never been an Edith Piaf musical. For now, give Christine's album a listen. Like Piaf herself declared, you'll have no regrets. Jamie here, that's our show. Thanks for listening. The Fabulous Invalid is a production of O&M Etc. and The Fabulous Invalid LLC. Our theme music is by Lucky Chops. Today's episode was edited and engineered by Aaron Kaufman. Find us on iTunes and online at thefabulousinvalid.com and on social media at Fabulous Invalid. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.